0: So, glad to be here uh, this morning, uh, get a chance to, uh, to uh, share with you a little bit. As I've mentioned with the other times when I've been up here, I'm fortunate that uh, I'm given lots of lead way, lead time to, you know, uh, to think about things, and there's usually something uh, going on in my head, believe it or not, that I'm thinking about and dwelling upon, and uh, just a few of the things came together, um, and uh, uh, I, I really struggled with the uh, you know, a sermon title, What you know, what do I call this, you know, and uh, so uh, I've got this strange title, um, The Task of Untangling Our Minds, and uh, like I said, this comes from a little bit of uh, contemplation about what's going on in my own life, things that I see, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, observations from my own life, and and, uh, also what I think might be some solutions, and so Uh, That's what I would like to share with you this morning. Uh, So let's uh, open with a word of prayer first Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, by your spirit uh, you would be teaching us. You would be leading us in all things Lord, I pray that we would uh, uh, Just be able to take hold of a a serious subject for ourselves and and uh, Where we are as a church in this environment and this world today our culture today and uh, Lord we'd be able to uh, take the right steps that we might be your people who are obedient, who are growing in righteousness, who are uh, fully uh, enjoying uh, your peace and the confidence that we have in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Advance to the next slide, please. Okay, so uh, I've got a chart up here. I am not a visual person. I'm not a, uh, uh, you know, very good uh, person. artistically, none of that. So I tried to put a diagram together here and say, okay, in our world today, what affects our thoughts? Okay, across the top, I've got a lot of devices that we rely on, right? Uh, I think the first one's supposed to be a tablet, uh, and then uh, a cell phone, then a computer, a radio, TV, you know, these devices are on, they're part of our life, they proliferate, uh, many households have multiple versions of these in the household, depending on, you know, who's got a, one, etc. So these are all devices, and there's all kinds of stuff out there that come to us from these devices into our lives, into our minds. We're bombarded in almost by it, and, and the choices are endless, right? So there's the devices we connect to. Then over on the right-hand, uh, left-hand side, I guess... Uh, Ah, okay. (laughs) Uh, I'm moving out of the camera range, I guess, okay. But I might trip over these pieces of tape. It's not good. So, uh, apps on the the left-hand side of the screen, you can see the Facebook, the Twitters, the Instagrams, all the ways in which we supposedly can stay connected, okay, but realize that, you know, it's not always for your benefit. And then on the other side, uh, I've got the, the others. Games, uh, you know. Again, on those devi- almost every one of those devices, you can play games. You can connect to blogs. You can read memes all day long. Uh, you can, uh, you know, get get uh, plugged into the news. Comes at you all the time, right? Next one, please. So, a couple of questions I have for you, and one more, I think. Yeah, good. Okay, how many of these devices are turned on? First thing in your morning. Okay. But we do this, right? We first thing we do, perhaps, maybe not even rolling out of bed yet is to turn on one of these. Right. Okay. you that's just it. Right. Okay. How many of these are present with you all day long? Right? And I'm not talking about work. I'm just saying, you know, do you, know, you have one of these devices with you at all times during the day? How many are, uh, hours are these on in your waking day? I would venture a guess a lot. Right? And again, not for work. Right? There's a lot that comes to us from these sources. Go to the next slide, please. So, again, the title here is what affects our thoughts, our thinking during the course of a day. Our inputs from all these things, the devices and the applications all come to us in a bit of a tide, I would call it. Sometimes overwhelming, right? thought, things to think about, again and again, and it it comes at us rapidly, right? How much of it is true, or how much of it is totally at odds with God and his will? I would suggest to you that we are not computers. We think we can multitask, but we do not have enough time to think, evaluate, and digest all that comes at us. Also, who has decided that these things should be there for us? Right? Who's decided to provide them to us? What's their purpose? Who profits? Sometimes they're clickbait titles with very little substance. And the problem with that is, that is just giving us thoughts, but without substance to perhaps prove them or substantiate them, or they're things that are meant to be a quick five-second view of something, right? Because our minds actually have been trained a little bit of, with all this stuff. We, we've got an attention span that's that short right now, right? And habits are formed to chase more, to stay plugged in more. Next. And the effects for us, I think, are a jumble of thoughts. Too many of them are useless or downright harmful. Problems come up. And we get energized about it. Oh, that's horrible. We, we've got to do something about it. And, and we think we have to fix it. We get it, we get, you know, all worried about all these things. Certainly. With the pandemic this year I think would be a great example of that, right? When is it going to get fixed? How do I fix it? How do, what do I have to do for myself, or my family? And we just get caught up in this and there's emotion that gets involved and oftentimes just plain fear. We are not at peace with all this stuff that bombards us. And sometimes then if we try to retreat from it all, what do we go to? We go back to being more distracted. We go back to the same things. There is too much of our time that is spent passively taking things in, being the recipient. And I think it leads to a bit to our ineffectiveness in life. We're too distracted to do because we're taking in or we're watching. We're being entertained perhaps or, or just, you know, diverted. And ultimately I think Oftentimes, it's a distraction to our true purposes in our lives. Now, I am not telling you, I don't believe these things have value. I am not telling you that. But I'm telling you, I think there is this cumulative effect that I think all of this coming at us so fast, all the time, causes a distraction. And deep down inside, I don't think it helps our very emotions and our very soul. I am not telling you to smash all of them. There was a group of people back in the early pre-industri- uh, pre-industrial age, industrial age in, in England, uh, and they were known as Luddites. Luddites were the group of people who were, they saw all this technology and they, they saw it as a threat to, you know, we, uh, to people who were in the, weaver, uh, the weaving industry and, and producing cloth. Uh, you know, the fact that there were uh, looms that were making uh, weaving easier or steam engines that were powering uh, spinning and weaving in mills. And so they, they, they reacted to it by deciding they were going to smash it all. All right, And so they'd they'd go into the the homes and they'd smash the weaving uh, frames. They'd go into the mills and they'd smash the machinery. I'm not saying that you need to be a modern-day Luddite, okay? But I think we need to consider its effects. Now I want to go back a bit. Earlier this fall, Sunday morning small group, we... um, looked at the subject of contentment. Okay, Melissa Kruger, excellent teacher, uh, excellent study. In that, she referenced a book. Uh, the book is called The Imitation of Christ. Written by a man named Thomas Akempis. You can see, uh, lived in 1380 and 1471. And it was a, a, a devotion, uh, a devotional about spiritual life. Okay, so now, do you realize how many years ago that was? That was 700 years ago, roughly. And The Imitation of Christ is perhaps the most widely read Christian devotional next to the Bible. I didn't know that. I knew about the book. I think it was referenced in uh, one of my college history classes, Medieval History or Early Reformation So next to the Bible, and regarded as a devotional and religious classic, its popularity was immediate in that time and had been printed 745 times before 1650. And apart from the Bible, no other book has been translated into more languages than the imitation of Christ at the time. Okay, even back then when printing wasn't as predominant now as it is. In the book, our writer uh, says, you know, there's a a primary requirement for the spiritually serious, we must imitate Christ's life in his ways if we are to be truly enlightened and set free from the darkness of our own hearts. Let it be the most important thing we do then to, is to then reflect on the life of Jesus Christ. So that's where he starts, right? The book is an interesting book, and we'll come back to that later on, um, but I thought this was interesting. I put the quote up here. This is from the, uh, the foreword uh, in, in, the, in the book, uh, the, or at least the edition that I have. And it says, while this work is long and repetitious, even the length and repetition must be seen as a reflection of a campus's agonizing understanding that his culture, his culture, 700 years ago, let alone ours, does not, as we say today, get it. People have a little urgency about living an undistracted life. They have little notion of what it takes to be a Christian in the tradition of Christ. They would rather any day feel good rather than be good, feel spiritual rather than to know God. So that was interesting. He a modern-day writer putting this book into context for us and saying, you know, Thomas Kempis was basically calling out the church of his day, And saying, hey guys, you're missing it. This was a message of the day. It was directed to many of the churches. The clerics, the people in the monasteries. And the uh, leaders of the church of the day. And he says, hey, you need to come back and think about seriously imitating the life of Christ. Next, please. So what... Types of things did Akempis talk about? You get some themes. It says, first of all, don't trust yourself. We're sinful. Your desires are, are, are prompted by our sin, sinful nature, that, that nature that doesn't look to please God, but seeks to transgress what he really wants for us, what he sees is best for us. It says, One thing you have to do is you don't indulge yourself. You don't seek after vanities. Don't seek always to please yourself and to get more of something. Put your full trust in God in all circumstances of life. Draw apart from the world to spend time with God. And lastly, to serve in love as part of your obedience to God. So we go next. I think we've got a list of quotes. I think we can take them one at a time, and I'll just read them off here, uh, just for everybody who maybe can't see them, um, if I didn't uh, make them big enough, or maybe online, maybe not uh, able to read them. So just a couple of samples of quotes. I thought some of these were were uh, kind of important. I think they're good reminders for us. But again, just the types of things that he lays out for consideration. Right? He's talking to people, and he's hoping that as they read the book, they will be encouraged to do some of this. And be reminded of some of this. First of all, love feels no burden, thinks nothing of its trouble, attempts what is above its strength, pleads no excuse for impossibility, for it thinks all things are lawful for itself and all things are possible. The more humble and obedient to God a man is, the more wise and at peace he will be in all that he does. God hath ordered it that we may learn to bear one another's burdens. For no man is without fault, no man without his burden, no man sufficient of himself, no man wise enough of himself. But we ought to bear with one another, one another comfort one another, help, instruct, and admonish one another. I'm talking about what our lives should look like, right? Go ahead. I like this one, never be entirely idle. Either be reading or writing or praying or meditating or endeavoring endeavoring something for public good. This is interesting because I think too much of what goes on in that I set up on our first slide there is too much uh, that goes on in our life is this passive nature of of taking all that comes at us through the internet and the devices that are connected to it and all the people out there, it's just coming in and our lives become very passive, right? Uh, You know, before all these devices that we talked about, people sitting in front of the TV as being what? Couch potatoes, right? Okay, there's that passive uh, nature that's fostered. This guy, 700 years ago, saying, hey, there's things you need to be doing. Next, please. Let all your thoughts be with the Most High and direct your humble prayers unceasingly to Christ. As iron casts into a fire, loses its rust, and becomes glowing white, he who turns completely to God is stripped of his sluggishness and changed to a new man. And lastly... Nothing is sweeter than love, nothing stronger or higher or wider, nothing more pleasant, nothing fuller, nothing better in heaven or on earth. For love is born of God and cannot rest except in God who is created above all things. My intention there is to give you a glimpse of what this writer was talking about 700 years ago as he was calling the church to look and reevaluate itself. (coughs) What was important for individuals, okay? And it was To uh, draw apart on on a regular basis and consider themselves, who they are, their sinful nature, what is it that God wants them to do, how can they be useful to God? So he is giving us one set of encouragements and I will say that uh, there is certainly a lot in the book. I have kept it by my bedside. Uh, since I, have a, a got, I, I received a copy. Now, I want to mention, by the way, I received a copy because of a very, very considerate person in the church after our study in the fall, uh, following Sunday or maybe the Sunday after that, had a copy for me, and they gave it to me as a gift. Wonderful. I really appreciate that. That was very thoughtful, and I have kept it by my bedside and uh, have been reading it uh, at night uh, oftentimes. And again, I'll come back to that in a minute. But, if we go to the next slide, how important is it that we learn something that was lost in the church, or has been lost in the church, and I don't think we put enough emphasis emphasis on it today, is what we would call spiritual exercises or spiritual disciplines. We have lost that. Thomas Akempis, 700 years ago, was challenging the church. And I think, likewise, I think in our church today, in our modern life, with all those things I had on our first slide, I think it gets overwhelmed. And we don't do enough of spiritual exercise, so to speak. All right? But I want to now look at the, 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 you know, Akempis was talking about the imitation of Christ. Well, now we're going to go look and see what did Jesus do. Luke chapter 2. If you want to follow along, so, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel, um, chapter two, uh, we actually uh, came across this uh, a week ago uh, on Sunday uh, in our Sunday morning small group on what uh, did Jesus do is the, is the topic of that series. And uh, we were here in Luke chapter two, verse 41 to 52, the end of chapter two. So let me read it. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know him, but supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey. And then when they began to search for him amongst their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they turned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting amongst, among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when the parents saw him, his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Here's a 12-year-old boy. All right. We have to remember that Jesus was fully divine But in his incarnation, he took on the form of a man. He was truly human, fully human. And so as a young boy, we see him in this particular uh, vignette, this little part of his life growing up. (coughs) And this is 18 years before his, uh, his, his public ministry starts. And we find this boy in the temple. He is sitting with the teachers of the law. And what's he trying to do? He is trying to learn everything he can about God. He's seeking to understand. He's he's listening to them and asking questions, it tells us in verse 46. And why is in that answer that he gave to his mother? I must be in my father's house. A 12-year-old boy, and he knows that what's important for him is he needs to understand what God wants. He needs to understand all of that because of what is to happen. And it talks about him at the end there in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom. Jesus knew the need to seek out God and his truth. Let's go on. We can come to another next example. Luke chapter 6, and I just picked a couple. Chapter 6, verse 12, and in these days he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, uh, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went out into the mountains to be alone, away from all the distractions, right? And it says he prays all night long. Why does he pray? He's going to make a decision the decision is described for here. He is going to name the 12, the disciples, the messengers of God that he is going to count on to be part of his ministry. We're early on in that that ministry right here in in Luke chapter 6, right? And he is going to call them not only because of what they're going to do with him while he is uh, here alive with us and before the crucifixion, but he is going to count on these people to be the ones to continue to lead his people after he is no longer present on earth, right? And so to make that decision, Jesus, you know, he goes and he says, okay, God, what do you want me to do, right? This is a hiring decision, right? You know, you, got to, you want the best people for the job, Who's named last in the list? Who's named last in the list? That he chooses to be one of the twelve? Judas Iscariot. Jesus, because of his divine nature, foreknew. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he still chose Judas Iscariot. There was a purpose in that. He wasn't going to be the perfect disciple. Jesus had a decision to make, and he goes and he seeks God's direction before it's made. And we look at that list and say, oh, well, oh, well, wait a second. That wasn't the right choice. No. Judas Iscariot was going to play a role. But Jesus sought God's direction. We lastly go to the passage in Luke 22. In the Garden of Gethsemane, leading up to the final events, so to speak, of the crucifixion and then his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Verse 22, verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice that the second time that he's reminding them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. But what does he pray about? He's now by himself again, and he knows all these events are going to take place, and he knows what the Father's will is, and yet he knows that he is going to suffer. Right? He's going to be, as a human, he is going to suffer torture, crucifixion on the cross, and ugly death. And in his divine sense, he knows that as he dies, he is going to experience something he should never have experienced. He is going to die a sinner, and therefore, he is going to be separated from God the Father. And what does he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. This cup. This cup was a symbol. I think Isaiah fifty-one seventeen is a reference you might want to look at. It's the symbol of God's wrath and anger. Is the way it's talked about in Isaiah. Okay? So he says, take this cup. This cup that's going to, he's going to experience God's anger and wrath. Because the sin of the world, sin of all of us is going to be on him. And he says, look, I'd really rather not have this happen. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He says, show me how to do that. And notice what happens. The angel comes and strengthens him in response to that prayer because he knows he is going to do the Father's will even though it costs him more than we can possibly imagine. But that's his, his, his statement. God, if, if this is what you want, please help me to do that. Jesus, in these three incidents that we've looked at here in, in Luke, is going to God, being in his presence, seeking to be alone, not to be distracted, so they can have a dialogue, a, you know, a time to talk to God. And he's talking to them about big decisions. And he's talking about the, 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 the ability and the strength to proceed doing God's will. Thomas Kempis is talking about the imitation of Christ. He's talking about us being serious in the consideration of being like Jesus. Right? Next. So the subject of spiritual exercises or spiritual disciplines is real for us today. We need to set in place a vaccine. Sorry, I had to do it, guys. (laughs) Against all that misleads and confuses us. I'm not saying it's all bad. Lots of it is. But the way we make sure it doesn't affect us is we need to put something in place And I would suggest to you that it is making sure that in your life there is a disciplined setting aside of time for God. It must be a priority and it must be habitual. It needs to be habitual to, to almost as much as breathing is for us. Breathing is not a conscious act, is it? It happens. As long as our body is living, we breathe. We do not have to seriously think about, oh, i got time for another breath. Time for another breath. That doesn't happen, does it? It's just natural. It's part of our life. It's built into who we are. I would make an argument that this needs to be that habitual. That matter-of-fact part of our life. I think we rely too much on an inappropriate view of God's grace. What do I mean by that? We know that as individuals in this world, we have free will. And we know that even though God sent his son to die for us, to die for, you know, the the consequences of each one of our sins uh, is is to be separated from God. So we know that God, through Jesus Christ, sent him to die for our sins, that we might be forgiven of those sins and reconciled to him. But uh, that's God's grace. God has done that for each one of us. but we have to do something with it, don't we? We have to get to the point in our lives when we say, God, I realize I have not done your will. I realize I am a sinner, okay? Uh, uh, I have not been the person I should be. And we have to say, I accept Christ's death on my behalf. Right, that's what we call being a Christian or becoming a Christian. It's taking that step. We play a part in that. God's grace is there, but we play a part of saying, it applies to me. I think, day by day, we need to do the same. We need, God's, God, we cannot make ourselves into being sinless. God does that through his spirit. He helps us grow. He helps us become more obedient. He helps us see where we fall down and where we make mistakes. And he helps us conquer that through his spirit. That is clear also in the Bible. We do not make ourselves righteous, right with God. We can't do it. But what we can do, we should do. And I think we take an inappropriate view of God's grace. We say, well, God, God does it all. I don't need to do anything. I don't think that's quite how it works in God's economy, so to speak. I think oftentimes we don't fully count on the cost and consequence of sin and do not seek holiness in our lives. We say, hey, I'm forgiven for my sin. So guess what? If I sin today or tomorrow, it's okay because God's forgiven me. That's true. But Paul's very right and says, well, does that mean I, 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 I go on sinning so that there'd be more grace applied to me? And the answer is no, that's foolishness, right? I think also we put full responsibility on God to change us and we think we don't have to do anything. We never truly repent or ask God what we need to change or what actions we need to take. It's like, God changed me. Okay, that's good but we're part of that. And I tell you what what part of it is this idea of spending time with God every day. Next, please. And I would tell you and this is what I'm learning. First thing in the morning before any thing else. Before the device, probably sitting on your bedside table, gets turned on. Before you get distracted with work. I find myself doing this, having worked from home now, this is last year. You know, I get up, I, you know, st- I'm still in my pajamas. So what's the first thing I do? I go look at my PC and see what work's got for me during, for the day. And therefore by st- you know, 5.30, 6.30, 7.30, whatever time it is, I'm already thinking about work and all the things that I've got to do. Now, that's a mistake. First thing I need to be doing, to be, need to be doing is setting aside this time to say, God, what is it that you want to tell me? Nothing should come before being in his presence and setting your eyes on the true lodestar Star of our life. I think back in a couple of sermons a little while ago, I talked about uh, being outside and learning where the North Star is and how to be able to find it, right, and how important that is, you know, historically from navigation and finding your way around. You've got to know where the North Star is. And if you know the North Star is, you know where South and East and West Star, and you're good. I need to know where he is, and I need to know where I am in relation to him in my life. And that needs to happen first thing. Next, please. The second thing I've come to a consideration about is there's an and. And at the end of the day, I need to be able to sort of, at the end of the day, conclude my day to assess and perhaps calm my heart, my thinking. All that's gone on in the day and all that's got me anxious and you know, wrought up and all the things I'm thinking about, I need to be able to leave them in God's hands. So my suggestion to you is that you take the time at night before you go to sleep. Now down through the years, uh, I've always read before I go to bed. That's just been my habit since I was a young boy right? And I read voraciously, right? Everything. But I'm learning that perhaps that time is more importantly spent, at least at the very end of it, in saying, okay, God, how's the day gone? Uh, God, how has the day gone, right? Review the day, give into his hands all that concerns me. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about something, subconsciously, I'm thinking about something, and I wake up, and I'm, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm bothered by something, and it wakes me up from a deep sleep. I need to give that to him. I also need to give to him all that is still undone, because that's the next thing. I don't sleep well. Why? Because I'm worried about the thing I got to do tomorrow, the thing I got to wake up to and get done. And more importantly, I need to consider what it is that I need to do and can resolve to do Tomorrow. From his perspective, not mine. Oh, sorry about that. I was supposed to delete that. Hold that thought on the top left, okay? All right. Why did I bring books? Good reason. This is an object lesson, right? Okay. So what is it? that you want to take a look at when you're taking that time to spend with God in the morning and in the evening. First of all, your Bible. I'm not going to tell you what translation. I want you to get something you feel comfortable with in terms of, you know, obviously, you know, not rewritten by a Buddhist, for instance, but, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. There's lots of good Good translations out there. Some of them are just the Bible itself. Some of them are study Bible. I happened to just buy this one recently. It's an ESV Study Bible um, that I was uh, interested in. Um, I have never had a study Bible per se. se. The Bible you most often have seen me with before today, I think, even has been the Bible that Sarah gave me uh, the year before we were married. Okay, and I've had that NIV Bible since then, and. uh, Uh, i've got all kinds of notes in it so it is not just is it precious to me because cheryl gave it to me uh, uh, before we married but it it also is got tons of notes in it that i've written over the years right so i find it invaluable for that but it's not a study bible so it's okay to get one that you might maybe find yourself a little bit more comfortable cheryl for instance i think she's bought a uh, a new living translation is that what it is yeah and uh, just a, sort of a, you know, in modern day English, uh, easy readable type of thing. And she's reading through the Bible that she's decided to do. And so, you know, that's what she's chosen. So, you know, my thought there is, you know, get one that you, you, you feel comfortable with, you know. Uh, this one, for instance, I probably, you know, probably a book that I want on the table when I'm going to read it. It's not going to sit well it's so heavy, I probably wouldn't want it on my lap. So maybe if I'm doing a quiet time, perhaps I'm going to pick, you know, something different. Okay, totally up to you. But this, God's unchanging, infallible word written for us. Other thoughts? Daily bread. Popular devotional. Always here at the church. Always free. Short, but it allows you to bring your attention to God in that time you spend with it. Table Talk Magazine, one I discovered two, three years ago, uh, published by Ligonier. Uh It is a daily devotional, but it also comes in the form of a little bit longer articles. Uh, and so I would leave it to you as I think it's great. Okay, uh, it does cost you; mm, it's nominal. It's something like thirteen dollars, fourteen dollars for your subscription. Okay, but another good thing. What do I do to God uh, today? What do I want to think about? Well, if you don't have anything else to start, you could start with one of these two things. God's Promises for Your Every Need, a book I discovered a few years ago, costs a couple bucks even today uh, through Christian uh, book distributors, uh, for instance. Uh, Not much. But it's a great book because it talks about God's promises to us and it's all organized. And so again, if you just want to think about God's grace to you and His assurance for life, great book to ta- to to uh, to use. What else did I put up there? Uh, God's promise for every need. Yeah, okay. Tim Keller. This is another one I've uh, and I'm only uh, scratched the surface of it. It is a uh, a book called God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. It is a study by Tim Keller on Proverbs. Proverbs is a great study. Very practical about things that are going on in your life, right? So this is a nice resource for that. Um, One that we have been using, uh, elders have been using, and the board sometimes have been using is a book called *The Valley of Vision*. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. Uh, You know, again, written some you know back in the 15, 1600s of all the the Puritans, uh, and it's a great, great help. What did they think about, right? What did, what did they think was important for life? Okay, a good starting point. Pilgrim's Progress. A couple years ago, we did, a, uh, I think, almost all year, it took us to go through the first part one of Pilgrim's Progress in, in the Sunday morning class. Okay, again, this book has survived all the years since John Bunyan wrote it, okay, back in the 1600s, because it's real. It talks about real things in a, in a form of a fable, okay, okay? It takes on the form of the realities of Christian struggles and life. A great thing to think about and pray about as it applies to you. Lastly, the imitation of Christ is another one. This one, the wording is a little bit... Oh, by the way, Pilgrims of Progress. Uh, you know, the old English, because it was written in 1600, sometimes is a little bit hard to understand. You can get a, a version that says, you know, today's English. Very readable, much, you know, doesn't obviously take away from the concepts and the, and the points, but more familiar in terms of our language. So, uh, there is a problem with the imitation of Christ, because it is written again in that, that 1300s, 1400s style of English. So it takes a little bit of time, but I find this one is pithy, if I would say it that way. You might only read a couple of lines, and that's enough to stop and think about and pray about, Okay. Uh, you're not going to, you know, you can read it uh, and read it right on through, but I would, I would not recommend that. All right, now I've taken us right to the, the end of the time, so let me conclude with a couple of things. What I'm trying to get across to you is I think in this life we're living, in this world, in this culture, we need to set aside time for, and get away from all the distractions, the things that bombard our minds daily. I said, in the, in the title, I, choose, I chose some specific wording. The task of untangling our mind. Task implies work. And it's going to take diligent effort for us to sort of set aside all those things that bombard our minds and our thinking every day. Come back to, what does God want me to be thinking about? All right? That's the task. That's the spiritual discipline. That's the spiritual exercise I'm suggesting to you we need. We need to make that time alone with God habitual. It's got to be the priority. It's got to be daily. And it's got to be not just a a quiet time. I believe it needs to be first thing, and I would highly recommend late in the day. Totally your choice, okay? But that's what I am coming to from a conclusion about what I need in my life, but a couple of other points I want to make to regard to this. Do not overplan it. Don't sit there and say, "Oh, Bob told me I needed all these books before I can start a quiet time, a time with God." No, I'm not telling you that. Okay, don't overplan it. It's like you know, I do this. Well, I need to get more exercise. Well, well, I guess I'll get a, a bike, a bike, and I'll use that, right? Or, or I'll, I'll get a mat and I can, you know, do my sit-ups and push-ups on that, right? Well, you can tell how much good that's done me. <laughs> no, right? But we, 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 we sort of set, you know, I need to go get this or I need to do this before I can do th- time with God. Don't overplan it. Now's the right time. This afternoon, this evening is the right time. Do not make it a process. You don't have to have a notebook and pencils and four different versions and a commentary, etc. Cetera, et cetera. You can. But you don't need it. Don't overprocess it. Get rid of hindrances, all that's in the way. Don't get all those excuses. I'll do it later. I've got too much to do now. Put all that away. Learn to hear God more and move as he directs. And lastly, in terms of setting your minds straight, rely on who God is, his very nature. He is all powerful. All the things that are going on in this world, they are not out of His control. All the things that are going to happen to me in the next day, in the next week, in the next year, in years ahead of me, in my life, in the life of all my family and the people I know, they are in His hands. Rely on His nature. He cannot be different than He is. He loves us, He knows what's going to happen, it's in His control. In one of our studies on Friday, uh, on the Friday Small Group, we've been doing a a study called The Time for Confidence. In one of those early lessons, the uh, teacher uh, directed us to uh, what he called the books of comfort uh, in Isaiah. Starting with Isaiah chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah chapter uh, 66, they are great words of encouragement, talking about who God is and his love and his grace. We need to rely on these things, and if you don't remember them, that's what the scriptures are there for. That's what the Bible is there for, for us, passages like the Isaiah Passage. So, sorry I've taken so long, but I hope this is a a help. Uh, This is not just an encouragement to you, but it's definitely something that I have been having to think about and having to reconsider. This is what we need to do in this world. I think sometimes we are flabby Christians right? We are not uh, being what we need to be. And I think it starts from coming to God every day and saying, okay, God, here's what, you know, uh, here's what's concerning me. God, what is it that you want me to be working on in my life? What sin needs to be rooted out? God, what is it that, that I need to do? Who do I need to be helping today? Who, who can I Uh, you know, uh, serve? Who can I love today? That's the starting point for our lives. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, we know, we know what you've done on behalf, and yet sometimes, Lord, we get distracted from it. We lose track. We get overwhelmed by things going on in the world, we go to overwhelmed by our own fears in reaction to that. Lord, we need to be at peace and experience fully your peace and have great joy in the life that you've given us in this world. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us see that. Lord, help us uh, take the steps to be in your presence. Lord, I pray in those times that your spirit would direct us so the words we're to read, the things we're to consider, make decisions about giving up certain things. Lord, make decisions and help us make decisions about choosing to take on responsibilities, take, take on uh, the, the ways in which you want us to serve. Lord, we pray that you would be the light, the lodestar that would be ever before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.